All right. Well, we're in Galatians chapter 4, uh, looking at verses 21 through 5, 6. Galatians chapter 4, looking at 21 through 5, 6. What do you need to do to continue to follow the path to eternal life instead of destruction? That's what we're going to look at today. Uh, we're continuing to work through the, the letter of the Galatians. And if you remember, Paul is dealing with some false teaching in Galatia, particularly from the Judaizers, and we'll talk more about them as we dive into the message here this morning. But, but we're really seeing, like, how is the gospel center, or how is the gospel supposed to be central for our life? And we're, we're, we've tagged, or I've tagged this series, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And so we're not supposed to add anything to the gospel, but we are supposed to remain in Christ alone. And we're going to see that played out and worked out in even more depth in today's message. So hopefully you found your place here in Galatians chapter 4, beginning of verse 21. Let me read that to you so you have an idea of where we are, where we are at um, in the text and, and how all of this is going to connect together. Beginning in verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born according to promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise, but... Just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love go to the lord in prayer god we thank you for this day and this opportunity to gather to open your word that, that you have provided to us and to learn from it god and we ask today that that you would encourage us that you would provide us hope that you would provide us direction that you would teach us god you would help us to understand why we should land on the gospel of Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm sure that there's been a time in your life where you have made wrong choices, right? You picked this restaurant over that restaurant, and your friends did not really like your choice. 
You chose to stay in one hotel chain over the other, and, and you found out that while, while it appeared that this was going to be a nicer hotel chain, they ended up nickel and diming you, and you should have stayed in, in the other one. Or maybe you chose this company over the other one and you did not see the advancement that they, that they promised you. Whatever it is, we've all made wrong choices in life. We are not perfect people and we won't be perfect this side of the new creation. And so there are going to be times when we're going to make choices that don't work out in the way that we think that they are going to work out. I remember this one trip in particular, my friends and I, uh, when, I was, when I lived on the East Coast, I used to surf all the time, and my friends and I, we... Uh, we're going to chase this hurricane swell, and, and the, the hurricane was sitting right off of the coast in Florida. And I know it's kind of weird, but, but living on the East Coast, that's, that's kind of like your time when the waves are good. And so you hope that a hurricane spins up off of, off of the coast. Not that, not that it comes and crashes into your city or anybody else's city, all right? You just hope it spins up off the coast and then it dissipates somewhere else and in the interim where it's out there and you're kind of frantic like do I board at my house do I not board at my house you're trying to take trips to the beach and trips down out of out of state to other places that are good and so this is what we were doing we had we had determined that we were going to travel down to St. Augustine if you know where Jacksonville is it's just like 30-45 minutes past Jacksonville and and this was our plan but I got the idea that morning while we were driving down that man we should go to this other beach, which is like two hours past St. Augustine, New Smyrna. And so I, I phoned one of my friends back at, at college, because this is when I was in college. I phoned one of my friends back in college, and I said, hey, can you check the surf forecast for me? Log into my account and all this stuff, check the things for me. And talking to him, I, I got the impression that the waves were going to be great in New Smyrna. And that sounded great at all, just what I wanted to hear. And so at this point, I had a choice to make. Would I oh, have, have my friends press on down to New Smyrna? Or would we continue to St. Augustine, the place that we had originally planned to go? Well, I talked my friends into going down to New Smyrna. And I had a choice to make at this point. You know, this guy that I had trusted uh, with this news, he'd never grown up at, near the beach. He'd never surfed before. He actually grew up on a farm in Alabama. And so I was trusting... This guy's opinion, which led to my choice to, to have my friends push on down to New Smyrna. And when we pulled up, I had one of those I told you so moments, right? Like, the, there were definitely ways, but they were not all, all that great. Definitely not what we were expecting. And what made matters worse is that the place that we were originally going to go, the waves were really, really good that day. Now, admittedly, I made a wrong choice. I, I disappointed my friends. I missed out on good waves that day, all because I deviated from the original plan, and I listened to somebody who didn't really know much about surfing. And I'm sure that you've done that in the past as well, right? You, you've, you've broken from your original plan. You, you trusted somebody who, who really didn't know, but they told you what you wanted to hear, and so you went along with them. You ended up disappointing your friends and your family, and hopefully it wasn't some major thing, but, but it might have been. You see, life is full of choices, and sometimes we choose wrongly. In a similar way, the Galatians, they were confronted with the choice, a choice that involved two paths, not two paths of two different beaches, but two paths and how they were going to relate to God. And like me, they chose the wrong path. They chose to follow the path that the Judaizers were blazing. The Judaizers, they were false teachers. They taught that you needed to be circumcised along with believing in Jesus as your Lord and Savior in order to be a part of God's family, in order to experience salvation. 
While that was a small addition to the gospel message, it it was an addition nonetheless, one that that put them square on the path to believing a works-based salvation. And throughout the book of Galatians, Paul, he's he's been confronting the Galatians with this news, with this choice that they have made. And Paul has confronted the Galatians in a number of different ways, um, and he's confronted them because their choice that he's confronted them because there is only one way to heaven, excuse me. And that one way is through faith in Jesus alone. Now, admittedly, that is not a, a popular message today, right? I mean, many people believe that there are there are multiple ways to heaven, that you can take a little bit of this religion and that religion, or that all religions lead to the top of the mountain, if you will. And to suggest that there's only one way to heaven will, will quickly get you labeled as somebody who, who thinks that you are superior to, to everybody else in this world. But that's not what we're saying, right? I mean, we don't believe that we are superior to others when we say that there's only one way to heaven. Rather, we are looking to God's Word and we are seeing, what does God say? And God Himself reveals in His Word, and we believe that the Bible represents His Word to us, that there is only one way to heaven, and that one way is through faith in Jesus alone. Now, I know that some people may be watching or listening or hearing, and you're like, well, okay, biblical argument, right? You guys are are Christians. You should believe the Bible. But, But maybe think about it from a practical standpoint. From a practical standpoint, it makes sense that there's only one way to eternal life, right? There are, there are many different religions in this world. Some of those are major religions. Some of those are minor religions. And each of these has their adherence. And each of those believers believe that their religion is the one that provides them with eternal life. From a practical standpoint, that, that makes sense. I mean, there's only one person who crosses the finish line of a race. There's only one person who is the CEO of a company. There's only one person who's the president of the United States. I mean, Practically, it makes sense that if the world operates in that way in many different spheres of life, that it would also operate that way in the religious sphere of life. There's only one path to eternal life. And you have all of these different competing religions saying, my way is the right way. And, and if you come in and you say, no, we can take all of these different religions and pieces of that, well, well, you have created your own religion. You've created a separate religion. You're not just taking one from this and one from that, and saying, oh, we're all good. No, no, you have created an entirely different religion. You see, there's only one way to eternal life. And we know that the way to eternal life as Christians, we believe that it is through faith alone and Jesus' work alone. That is how we experience eternal life. And, And we know that to be true because we have God's Word, we have history, we have personal and community experience. And if you deviate from that path, which Jesus calls the the narrow path, you will not make it to heaven. Instead, you will end up in a place called hell where God's wrath is poured out on you for all of eternity. And at first, the Galatians, they believed that. They, They believed that the way to eternal life was through Jesus alone. And they didn't deviate from that path, but but now they have. And Paul confronts them in this letter. Because they have deviated from that path. And Paul, if you've been tracking through the letters, confronted them in many different ways. And the tactic that Paul uses this morning is he uses the law. And he uses an episode from the Old Testament to help them see that they are on the wrong path. So what does Paul tell them they need to do to correct course? 
what do we need to do to continue to follow the path uh, to eternal life and, and not to destruction? Well, first, if we're going to continue to follow the path to eternal life and not to destruction, then we have to listen to the law. When Paul tells them this, he doesn't mince words. In verse 21, he says this, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Now that phrase, under the law, is an interesting phrase. I mean, initially, when you, when you read that, when you, when you hear that, you might get the impression that Paul believes that the law is, is a negative thing, that it's something to be rejected. But, but that's, not, that's not the case at all. Paul doesn't believe that we should just outright reject the law. I mean, it is a good thing if the law is used in the proper way. When Paul comes to the Galatians and he says, hey, why are you desiring to live under the law? He isn't saying that they should then go and forsake God's commands. That'd be contrary to what Scripture tells us, right? I mean, the Bible is, is, is constantly pointing us back to God's commands and keeping God's commands and obeying God's will and following God's will and not following our own will. And the law is one way that, that God reveals His, His will, will to us. God doesn't call us to follow and obey because He's some sort of cosmic killjoy either. He's not out to steal our fun away. God loves us and God wants what's best for us and He tells us what is best for us in His law, Amen. in His Word. And when we live according to God's design, things generally go well for us. Right? You see God's wisdom being exposed through the book of Proverbs, for instance. Proverbs are generalities, they're general, general ideas. It's not always something that, that holds true, but, but generally, if you follow God's wisdom, life will go well for you. We see that with the law as well. When Paul talks about the Galatians living under the law, as if it's a bad thing, he's not saying that they shouldn't obey the law and said, Paul has something different in mind. And so what does Paul have in mind here? Well, when Paul talks about the Galatians' desire to live under the law, what he means is that they have willingly placed themselves underneath the obligation to keep the law. It's become the way that they've chosen to relate to God instead of relating to God through Christ alone. And how did the Galatians come to believe that they are to relate to God through the law? Well, the Judaizers taught that you must keep the law in order to have a relationship with God. Specifically, they focused on a portion of the law. They focused on circumcision. And they taught that you had to believe the gospel, you need to be baptized, that you need to also be circumcised in order to be a Christian. And that, that, that's simply just, just not true. Yes, in the past you had to be circumcised in order to be a part of the nation of Israel. It is this distinguishing mark that defines you as those who are part of the nation of Israel, but, but that has is, that is changed in the New Testament. Baptism has become this distinguishing mark, this, this outward expression of, of an inward faith, if you will. And so it is through baptism that we make our public profession of faith. It is through baptism that we say that we are aligning ourselves with the God of the Bible. It's not through circumcision. And so we don't require people to get circumcised in order to become a Christian. We don't even require people to get baptized in order to become a Christian. Right? But baptism is a very important part, so I don't want to diminish that by any reason. I don't want you to hear me say that. But you don't have to be baptized in order to be a believer. Baptism is your outward expression of an inward reality. It is you saying to the world, 
I profess Jesus as my Lord and as my Savior. It is, it, it is the line in the sand, if you will, that you are willing to cross to say, hey, I am on this side. I am on the side that believes that Jesus alone is to be my Lord and is to be my Savior, and I believe that. It's not through my works, but it's through Jesus' work on my behalf that I experience salvation. And that's precisely where the Judaizers went wrong. They didn't believe that Jesus was enough. And so they added circumcision to faith and baptism. And for whatever reason, you've got the Galatians here who, who are being deceived by them, and they're believing what the Judaizers had to say. And when they did, they, they changed how they sought to relate to God. Instead of coming into God's family through faith, they were trying to enter through works. And that was a problem. Paul points that out, starting out in verse 2 of chapter 5. Look there with me. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Paul is pointing out here, he's like, look, if you go and you accept circumcision, then you are accepting a different way of salvation. You are accepting a salvation that requires you to come to God based on the law, based on keeping the law, based on being perfect. The Galatians were rejecting faith in Jesus alone. And here's the thing, we can never be, we can never be perfect. We can never be perfect at all. We are incapable of actually keeping the law. And if you remember a couple of sermons ago, that's what we talked about. One of the purposes of the law is to point us, not to the law and keeping the law, but the purpose of the law is to point us to Christ. Right. Because it shows us through all the ceremonies and all the sacrifices and all of the laws that we cannot actually keep that law. Now, it makes a temporary way for us to be in relationship with God, and that's through the sacrifices that, that are brought to the priest each and every day and through the Day of Atonement where blood is spilt for us and that blood covers us. But even the sacrifices themselves point to the ineffectiveness of those because they have to be delivered every single time a sin is committed. Blood was constantly pouring from the altar there. And this points us to Jesus to his one-time sacrifice for us. You see, the law points us to our need for a Savior, and the Galatians have rejected this. The Galatians are not actually listening to the law. They have stopped their ears. They have heard what they have wanted to hear, and they've decided that they are going to put themselves underneath the law. And Paul is saying, look, this is the wrong way to go, guys. You are now obligated to keep the entire law. You're obligated to keep all of it. And, and remember, you, you, can't, you can't do that. And so you have severed yourself from Christ. And he's saying, you need to listen to the law, he asks them. Do you not listen to the law? In other words, are you not hearing what the law says? Are you not processing the information that the law is putting out there? Right? It's kind of like with your kids or your grandkids or maybe your students at school and and you tell them something, and, and they just go along, and they, they, don't, they, they act like they, they didn't hear you. And they, they do exactly what you tell them not to do, or they don't stop doing what, what you are asking them to stop doing. And then you come to them and you say, Did you not hear me? I told you to stop doing that. Or I told you to go and do this. 
And it's not that, you're saying, not that you believe that they physically did not hear you. It's that you believe that, that they didn't process what you told them. And that's exactly what's happening here with the Galatians. He's saying, look, did you not hear the law? Are you not listening to the law? Are you not processing what the law has told you? Are you not applying that to your life? Do you not understand that the law is telling you Look, it is impossible for you to earn your salvation because you are not perfect. And to bring that idea home and to help the Galatians and us realize that we can't earn our way into God's family, Paul, he reaches back to this episode in the Old Testament, to the episode of Hagar and, and Sarah. And before we get to, to the part here in the Scripture that Paul brings in, let me give you the backstory so we'll understand Paul's teaching. If you remember back to the book of Genesis, God comes to Abraham and God promises Abraham that he is going to give him a child. And from that child, an entire nation is going to come, and that nation, and from that nation, a Savior is going to come who's going to provide salvation to the entire world. Now, this is no small promise at all that, that God is delivering to Abraham. I mean, if God came to you and he said, look, I am going to give you a son... And, and eventually a nation is going to come from you. And by the way, a Savior is going to come from that nation who's going to provide salvation to the entire world. Not a small promise at all. It'd be pretty mind-blowing if God showed up and said that to you. But for Abraham, this message was, was doubly mind-blowing. Abraham was not a young man when God came. He was about 70 years old. And, and Sarah wasn't young either, who was his wife. So it's not like, you know, he was 70 years old and he found him some 20-year-old wife to have, right? He's, she's right there alongside of him. Same age. Sarah was definitely past childbearing age. And to top it off, Sarah has always been barren the enti their entire marriage. Probably for like 50 or 60 years, she hasn't been able to provide Abraham with a child. And so it's not like God is starting off with a young couple, or it's not like God's starting off with a couple like in their 40s and 50s who's got like seven or eight kids or ten kids already. God is saying to a 70-year-old couple who has never had a kid ever before, you are going to have a nation come from you. God intends to show Abraham and the world then that he can do the impossible. And hearing God's promise, I'm sure that, that Abraham is just overjoyed all of his life. He has wanted a son. And here is God. He's, he showed up and he's giving him this amazing promise. And he's saying, you are going to have a son. And I'm sure Sarah is overjoyed as well because back then kids were everything. Like if you couldn't have a kid, you were looked down upon in society. And, and here she is finally going to have a kid and a son at that. And for a while, they, they both held on to this promise. They both believed that, that God was going to do what God said that he was going to do. But, you know, God's timing is not always our timing. God has this funny way of, of really stretching things out so that he stretches our faith and he teaches us things along the way. And God is doing that with Abraham. And God is doing that with, with Sarah. And, and that time just got too long for them. They grew restless. And thinking that that they were going to, to help God, Sarah says, I know what I'll do. I will give Hagar, who is her, who is her maid, 
who's her servant, who's young. He says, I'm going to give, I'm going to give her to Abraham, and they can have a child together. And this will be, this will be the promised one, right? I mean, God, he, he said he was going to give us this promised child, but he didn't really say how he was going to, going to do it, or she forgot that he said that he was going to do it through Sarah. It's like, well, maybe, maybe he's going to do it through me, but, but through my maidservant. It's an extension of me, if you will. And so she gets this idea, and, and Abraham, in, instead of saying, no, no, this is not what we need to do, Sarah, instead of, you know, leading his wife well, he says, yeah, let's do this. Let's go along with this. And so he takes Hagar, and they have a child together. And finally, after years and years and years, Abraham had this son. And I'm sure that this made him happy, but there was only one problem. This child's name was Ishmael, and Ishmael was Hagar's son, not Sarah's son, which meant that he was not the promised child, no matter how Sarah tried to, you know, make this work in her own mind and in Abraham's own mind, right? We have this tendency to, to really say, okay, this is, this is work this way, okay? This is how we're going to do it. No, that's not how this works with the Lord. He said this was the product of human initiative and not divine intervention. While Abraham and Sarah were unfaithful, God, he says, I'm going to remain faithful to you. In the course of time, he does provide Abraham and Sarah with a child. Over a decade and a half after God made this initial promise to Abraham, Sarah becomes pregnant, and they have a child by the name of Isaac. Now, that's the backstory. So look what Paul has to say, how he uh, takes this story and how he applies it to the situation here that we have in Galatia. Starting in verse 22 of chapter 4. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born according through, or was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children from slavery. The, she is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Not only does Paul make the distinction that, that one son was born according to human means and, and one by supernatural, but, but then he takes and he applies these two different covenants, right? To Hagar, he applies the Mosaic covenant, which was the covenant given at Mount Sinai in Arabia. And this is the covenant that has all the laws that are attached to it. This is the covenant that, that, that is centered on, and then, excuse me, then to, to Sarah, he applies the new covenant. And this is the covenant that is centered on Jesus and the salvation that he provides as he works on our behalf. And those who live underneath the new covenant can and do become a part of God's family, while those who live under the covenant uh, of the old covenant that, that we see here with, with Hagar, the Mosaic covenant, the one that, that she provides, those folks don't become sons of God, don't become daughters of God. Instead, they remain slaves. They remain outside of the family because they are not born according to God's promise. And so the point is this. If you live under the law, Hagar, not Sarah, is your mother. Instead of being a God, part of God's family, you are a slave who lives outside of the family, and you can never get into the family, right? Slaves beget slaves. Slaves do not beget sons. And to make it even more clear to the Galatians that following the Judaizers is not the path they need to travel, 
Paul says in verse 25. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Could you imagine being the Judaizers and hearing this? They were the ones who were absolutely sure that they were a part of God's family. After all, they were the ones who were keeping the law and the covenant and all of this stuff. They were doing everything right. But Paul, instead of placing them on the narrow path, instead of placing them within God's family, he says, no, you are outside of the family. You are actually a slave. And you cannot get into this family. And that's not just Paul's opinion. He's not saying that because he doesn't like them or he just wants to step on people's toes. He's saying that because that's what God's Word says. You see, if we want to remain on the path to eternal life and not destruction, we must listen to the law and we must hear it when it tells us that we cannot gain salvation by works. It is all Jesus' work on our behalf. That is the only way that we become children of God. Slaves beget slaves, not sons. Slaves can't earn their way into the family. It is only through our belief in Jesus' work on, on our behalf that we become a part of God's family. And if you are trying to work your way to God, if you are trying to, to earn favor with Him through your good deeds, listen to what the Scripture says. It says it's not going to work. That system, whatever system it is that you have concocted, no matter how smart you are, how brilliant you think you might be, it's not going to work. It's going to fail you. And on top of that, it's going to wear you out. It, it's, you're going to have to continue to grind it out to no avail. You will never know for sure if you have done enough to earn your way into God's family. And you're going to keep grinding, and you're going to keep pushing, and you're going to keep working, and there's going to be absolutely no rest and no peace for you. You're going to stay in this constant state of anxiety. But with Jesus, it's not like that. With Jesus, we can rest. With Jesus, we don't have to be anxious. We don't have to fear. We know without a shadow of a doubt, that it is Him who places us into the family. The scripture we read during the scripture reading time. Right? We learned that we are adopted into God's family. We were once outside of the family. But through Jesus, he, we are adopted into the family of God. We become sons and daughters of God. And that is simply amazing. That's not something that, that following the path of a slave can get you. Only by following the one who is the Son. That's the only way that we can be heirs of the Father. And through Jesus alone, we have that. And so we, we, we need not turn and try to be slaves and say what we need to do is we need to turn to Jesus. We need to rest in Jesus alone. We need to rest in the salvation that He provides us and the eternal life that He provides. The path to eternal life is is a narrow path. It's not a broad path, and it is the path that Jesus has blazed for us, not the path that the world has blazed. And it is only through Jesus alone that we can gain access to that, and it is only through Jesus' work in our life alone that we will enter into eternal life. Next, if we're going to continue to follow the path to eternal life and not to destruction, we must not forget about our birth. Starting in verse 27, Paul says this, for it is written, 
Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Paul here is reaching back to one of the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah. And and he's quoting from Isaiah 54 here. And and in context, Isaiah is speaking to the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel, they, they find themselves at this point in bondage in Babylon. You know, they've been kicked out of the promised land because they constantly rebelled against God, and and now they're in Babylon, and they find themselves there in bondage with really no hope for for the future. They're, they're, They're a floundering nation. They're despised. They're mocked by all of their neighbors. Sitting in bondage, they think that, man, this is never going to amount to anything. Certainly the hope that they would be a great nation that that possess the entire promised land has has burned out in them. And while they're in that desperate state, God comes to them through the prophet Isaiah, and he says, look, I want you to rejoice. Sitting in a place in their lowest of low, God, through Isaiah, is saying, rejoice. He tells them not to lose hope. He's produced children from barren women in the past and in the future. He is going to do the same for Israel. He would produce spiritual children through the nation and they would once again flourish as a nation. And that day has come. The church, us, right? We are the product of God's promise to Israel through Isaiah. Once again, the the promise has been fulfilled and it hasn't been fulfilled through Israel human means it's been fulfilled through God's work alone we have to recognize and remember that as we daily travel down the path of the Christian life we must remember that Jesus did everything and we did nothing that our salvation is 100% the product of God's work if we are to continue on the path to eternal life and not destruction we must remember that we don't contribute anything right it's Jesus plus nothing that equals everything and just like we don't contribute anything to our spiritual birth, we don't contribute anything to our, um, our physical birth, we don't contribute anything to our spiritual birth. We have to remember, and we cannot forget, how our birth has come about. We have to remember that God takes those, those that are barren, and He produces children, just like He did the same in our life. God has taken us who are barren people, who have no hope, who are outside of the family, and He births us into His family. And we must remember that. We must remember the amazing aspect of that. We must continue to worship God because of that. We must continue to hope in God because of that. And we know that we are a part of God's family because we have seen a change in our life. We, we We were dead to the things of God. We didn't desire the things of God before God comes and He works in our life. And now what we desire things of God. You guys are here this morning. You guys are singing praises to God. You guys are hearing this message this morning because you desire the things of God. When you were not a believer, you would not catch yourself in church on Sunday morning. You wouldn't catch yourself getting up and reading God's Word and and trying to obey God's Word and and lead your family according to God's Word. A change has been wrought in your heart. You now desire the things of God if you call yourself a Christian. And so we see that this new birth has become a reality in our life as we just look at our life and as we look at the change that has been brought about in our life and as we look at how our desire and our will has changed and how that 
that hopefully has changed over time. Since the time that you've professed faith in Jesus to, to today, whether that has been a week, a month, five, ten, fifty years. Right? Through the process of, of sanctification, through the process of the Holy Spirit working in your life, you are consistently putting off the sins and rebellion against God. And you are, you are latching on to and saying, I want to follow God even more. And you're willing to admit that you're a sinner in certain areas. And you're willing to cast that sin out of your life and follow God in that way. As we look at that in our life, we would see that, that man, we have been birthed anew. We have been changed. And it's, the change is taking place from the inside out, not from the outside in as we put you know, a bunch of restrictions on ourselves. It is a natural change that takes place in our heart that, that makes us gravitate towards the things of God. And we must remember that that has taken place, lest we be tempted to follow false teachers who are claiming otherwise. Lastly, we must cast out those who threaten our freedom. Beginning in verse 29, Paul says this, But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Paul continues to draw from the, the biblical story of, of Hagar and, and Sarah. And he fast-forwards a little bit to the time after Isaac has been, been weaned. Abraham, he makes this great feast of, of celebration for him. But instead of celebrating, Ishmael mocked Isaac. Sarah saw all that happen, and she told uh, Abraham that, look, you, you got to get, get rid of Hagar. I mean, this is not going to work out, you know. I mean, Ishmael despises Isaac. Hagar, I mean, you know, she doesn't like me either. You've got to get rid of this lady. And, of course, this troubled Abraham. I mean, Ishmael is, is his son. This is his, really his firstborn son ever. He didn't want to lose him, but, but God comes and and we can get into all the, the, the ramifications and details of this at a, at a later date, another sermon. But, but God comes and he assures him, look, this is the right thing to do. Even telling him that, that a great nation is going to come from Ishmael. You don't have anything to worry about. And with this assurance, Abraham casts out Hagar and Ishmael. And Paul takes this episode and he applies it to the Judaizers. He says... As sons of Hagar, the Galatians must cast the Judaizers out of their church. Allowing them to stay means that they're constantly going to be at odds with the way that God says that salvation is to take place. They're going to be in jeopardy of being led astray by something that is not a biblical gospel. They're going to be in jeopardy of led, being led down the wrong path, the path that leads to destruction. And so he says you have to cast them out of your church. You have to remove them. And just as Paul tells the Galatians to cast the Judaizers out, we have to cast out those who threaten our freedom in Christ. For as Paul says in 5.1 here, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Now commenting on this idea, one commentator says this, Paul is calling the Galatians to do in effect what we today would refer to as church discipline. It's often a difficult and heart-rending work, but it's essential not only for the preservation of the truth of the gospel, for the, but for the integrity of the body of Christ. And just as this gutsy and yet grace-promoting practice was needed in the ancient churches of Galatia, 
so too it is needed in our churches today. We must, for the sake of the gospel and our freedom in Christ, be willing to do that which is hard. We must be willing to cast out those who are teaching a false gospel. We, we cannot allow them to remain and, and propagate their message and be influenced by them in the church. Whether that be physically in this church, and as we're talking about church discipline, that would apply physically to this church. We, we, would, we would discipline them and we would cast them out of the church so that they no longer have the ability to teach and to lead in that way. But even thinking, thinking more broadly than that, right, we have to be very careful whose teaching we come under, whose books we read, whose podcasts we listen to, whose videos and whose, and whose programs we tune into on the television. Right, th today we are more connected than ever. It's not just about who is in your church preaching from the pulpit, but it is who is coming through on your phone, who's coming through on your television or your radio, right? We have got to be very, very discerning about who we allow ourselves to sit underneath because we can easily be led astray, just like the Galatians were being led astray here. Easily led astray by false teaching. You know, most false teachers, they're not just outright, blatantly spewing falsehood, right? It's always connected to God's Word in some form, fashion, or another, but there is a twisting that takes place. And oftentimes, we may not recognize that twisting that has taken place until it's too late. And that's what took place here with the Galatians. That's what can take place easily with us today. And so we must, we must be willing to cast those out. We must be willing to exercise church discipline. And many people, you think of that word church discipline, man, that sounds terrible. Many people think that it's punitive, but, but it's not. We're not seeking to, to punish someone. Instead, we would, we would cast someone out to show the seriousness of their sin in hopes that they will repent and they will turn to the biblical gospel. Disciplining someone is not only for the benefit of the church, but is also for the benefit of those who are sinners, who are false teachers, so that they might recognize their sin, so they might recognize their rebellion, so they might recognize their false teaching and the seriousness of that, and come and say, man, I was wrong. I was being led astray. I was deceived, and I repent of deceiving other people. That's the ultimate goal. Church discipline is not meant to be punitive, even though it has that sound to it, right? Instead, it's meant to be restorative. It's meant to draw people back into true fellowship with God if they've been led astray. And maybe they're not, they're not believers at all. It's meant to show them that what they are believing is not the true gospel. The way that they're acting does not align with God's word, whether they think it does or not. And they might see that. And then they might be drawn back into Christ. And maybe believe in Him for the first time, or repent of their sins, and come back into fellowship with the church and with Christ again. You see, there are only two paths that we can follow. One leads to destruction, while the other one leads to eternal life. And we must not allow the culture to suck us into the idea that there are multiple paths to eternal life. There's only one path to eternal life, and that is through faith alone in Jesus alone. We must make sure that we continue to believe that, and we trust 
and Jesus alone so that we will continue to stay on the narrow path to eternal life. According to today's passage, we stay on that narrow path by listening to the law when it tells us that we cannot earn our salvation through our own works. By remembering our spiritual birth is all God's work on our behalf. He saves us through Jesus' sacrifice and he draws us to himself through the work of the Holy Spirit. And lastly, by practicing church discipline on those who teach false doctrine and threaten our freedom in Christ. Some of those things are difficult. But if we're going to continue on the path to eternal life, we have to stay the course. Walking the path that is at times difficult. The road to destruction is a broad road. It is an easy road. If there are little bumps in the way, you can move over to the other side. But the narrow path is not that way. The narrow path is not always the easy route. The narrow path doesn't always have a smooth surface by which you can walk. But the narrow path is the path that leads to eternal life. And when the, when the road forks, that's the path that we must stay on. We should not choose the broad path, but we must continue on the narrow path. We must finish the race that we have begun in Christ, in Christ alone. And that's how you can respond today, by purposing to follow God's path to eternal life, by purposing not to blaze your own path, by continuing to stay on the narrow path of eternal life, to stay on that path. Continue to trust in and believe in God who has provided you with eternal life in Jesus alone. And and if you are one who is here today and you would admit, man, I'm not on, I'm not on the narrow path. I'm on the broad path. Well, well, those paths are, there's a fork in the road for you today. Today, won't you choose the fork that leads to the narrow path? The fork that leads to trusting in Jesus alone and not your works, but Jesus alone for salvation. Now is an opportunity for you to do that. In a moment, we're going to We're going to sing, and it's going to be an opportunity for us to respond, to us to respond to the message that we have heard. If you're a believer, worship Jesus for the salvation that he has provided and the work he's doing in your life. If you're not a believer and you would admit that, man, now is the opportunity to take the road less traveled. Now is the opportunity to turn to Jesus and to admit that he is your Lord and your Savior, to repent of your sins, your rebellion against God, and to experience salvation in Jesus alone. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and let's respond to this message. God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together, to open your word, to learn from it, to read it, to to be challenged by it, Lord, to be encouraged by it. And we ask today that you would do that, God. You would encourage us to continue down the narrow path, And you would, Lord, work in the hearts of those who are not on the narrow path this morning, those who would admit that they are on the broad path, who don't believe in Jesus alone, have been trusting in their own works or something else, that you might work in their heart this morning, God, that you might draw them to yourself so that they might profess Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior here today, this morning. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.